When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast can be heard along with lots of other great agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs on the Farm and Rural Ag Network. What better way to kick off Dairy than to talk to one of social media's favorite dairy farmers. Julaine Truer and her family operate Creekside Dairy, an organic dairy farm in British Columbia. Julaine, welcome to the show. Hi, Wendell. Thanks for having me. Did you notice that I was struggling with your name just a little bit? Just a little. That's all right. That's very common. <laughs> I know, because we just had a whole discussion about Elaine, but Julaine, and not Julianne, and I still got it wrong. I know. I tell my parents all the time, did they have to pick something that was that difficult to pronounce? (laughs) (laughs) I feel your pain on that one. Trust me. Trust me. (laughs) Okay. So so thank you for, for joining me on the show. You put me off a little bit because you were expecting and have now had your baby. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, we welcomed uh, little baby Avery December 14th, so uh, seven weeks ago. And uh, it's been crazy. She's number five. Our oldest is 11. It's a pretty busy household around here, but we are starting to get into the swing of things again. And she's learning how to sleep better, which is always a good thing. Everyone's an adjustment, right? It is. It's definitely an adjustment trying to, yeah, fit a a new baby schedule into your own schedule and... um, but I think we've adjusted quite well now. And now you just couldn't imagine life before you had her. Exactly. <laughs> Especially <laughs> when she's uh, cooing and smiling and so much fun. It's uh, She's definitely a joy to have around. Okay, let's do some background stuff. Whereabouts in BC are you? So we're in the eastern end of the Fraser Valley. So we're about two hours east of Vancouver, close to Hope, BC, if anyone knows where that is. And sort of how far is that from the U.S. border? Um, if we go straight south, um, well, the, the closest border crossing is about 35 minutes away. Um, if you would drive due south or as the crow flies, it's about yeah, 30, 25 to 30 minutes uh, south of us. So I think about oh, 80 kilometers north of the border. And tell us a little bit about the Fraser Valley. Pretty, pretty concentrated dairy area, is that right? Oh, very much so. Yeah, it's um, and it's driving the land prices up like crazy, of course, too, around here. <laughs> um, we have a pretty mild climate here. It's, I think the mildest in Canada, along with Vancouver Island. Uh, for example, today it's <laughs> it's uh, five degrees and raining, and we get a lot of rain in the winter. It's, it can get pretty dreary, and we welcome the snow when we do get it. But yeah, the the mild climate has de- definitely has its perks for dairy farming. We uh, we get uh, at least usually five good cuts of grass every year, and can grow pretty good corn too. And fairly concentrated, like your dairy farms wouldn't be big acres, probably. No, um, there's there's some bigger ones, but I would say the majority of the farms are, yeah, 100, 150 acres. That's kind of where it maxes out. And then there's plenty of small ones, like 20 or 30 acres. But then those farms will usually rent some land along with their own, or otherwise they'll be buying a lot of feed. And the farm that you're on now, it's you, your husband, you got five kids. Anybody else working on the farm? Uh, two part-time employees. And is this the farm that has been in your family or your husband's family? Ah, no, that's uh, that's a story in and of itself. That's good. We need some stories. 
Okay. All right. So my husband uh, was born in the Netherlands. Um, his family was a dairy farming family. And then when he was 18, his dad sold their farm. He became a, a minister, a pastor, actually. And then a few years later, he accepted a call from our congregation here in, in Chilliwack, the church where I attended with my family. Okay. So he and his family moved out this way, and he and his brothers were quite thrilled because there was better opportunities for farming out this way, and they had hoped they could start up a farm here, seeing as Holland was kind of impossible in the farming way at that point. So they moved here, and we started dating right around the time he and his brothers bought the farm. So that was he and two brothers (laughs) bought a dairy farm um, in Rosedale, a going concern farm. Uh, with 100 acres. So um, the three farm, the three brothers, they farmed together for five years. And during that time, we dated and got married and had our first child. And then one of the oldest brother decided to move off to Ontario. The land is cheaper there, and uh, there was better opportunities for him there. Wait, he's not, he's not in the Oxford County area, is he? He is, yes. I know him. Yeah, Burgessville. Yeah, I know him. <laughs> yeah, Evergreen Street. He's he's yeah. building a new barn right now, actually. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Small world. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and then uh, so my husband Johannes and his younger brother then they continued farming on our on that farm um, until 2011 when we each bought smaller farms and sold the original farm, and so we've been farming here in Agassiz then on 72 acres of our own land um, since January 2011. And he's, my husband is actually um, a fifth generation in his family to be farming. So his uh, great, great, great grandfather milked 30 cows in the uh, late 1850s, I think, in the Netherlands. And they processed all their, their cheese and stuff on farm and sold it at the market. So it's been kind of neat talking to Opa about all that old history, too, and drawing the lines back through the dairy farming family. Any family still farming in Holland? Some uncles. He still has some uncles farming in the in the Netherlands, yeah. And is there any farming on your side? Did you grow up on a, a farm? Uh, my mom's parents were dairy farmers. Um, they sold the farm when I was still young. So there's, there is definitely dairy farming on both sides. And I grew up just on a beef hobby farm, actually. We had about oh, eight beef Hereford cows. And uh, they did not end up on our dinner plates because we got too attached to them. But they kept the grass <laughs> down on our five acres. <laughs> Wow, it's an expensive lawnmower. Yes. <laughs> okay, so you are dairy farming in the next best place to dairy farm next to Oxford County in Ontario. Actually, I would I would agree with you. Uh, I, we visited Oxford County a few times, and honestly, that is one gorgeous place to farm for sure. Okay, so I noticed because I was looking on your Facebook page, kind of getting ready for this. Creekside Dairy is your, your farm name, and that's your Facebook page. I noticed that the New Hamburg Agricultural Society commented on on one of your posts. And I just wondered if you know where New Hamburg is. No, I don't. <laughs> I didn't even look. I didn't look at the profile. I should have, <laughs> but I haven't had time. I just thought it was funny because I'm sitting, I live in New Hamburg. I'm sitting in New Hamburg right now. Oh, that's so neat. And you're out in BC, so other side of the country. And one of your most recent posts on your Facebook page was a comment from the Agricultural Society of the town that I live in. So... <laughs> Oh, that's neat. I didn't realize there was a New Hamburg in Ontario. I was actually thinking it was a, sort of a New York-style name or something. But <laughs> ah, Well, n- now you know. Yes. Okay, so your farm is organic. 
Yeah, yeah, we transitioned to organic, um, let's see, our transition was complete in November 2015, so we started in August of 2012, so it's a, it's a three-year transition to transition a dairy farm into organic production, so you first start with the land, so that means applying no prohibited substances to the land, such as chemical fertilizer or herbicides and things like that, mm-hmm. or synthetic herbicides, and... Then in the final year, so starting in August 2014, we started transitioning our herd. The herd transition takes uh, one year. During the first nine months of the year, the herd has to be fed 80% organic feed and or feed that's been raised on farm under organic principles. Then the final three months, the, the feed must be all organic or raised on farm. It's a lengthy process, but um, we were pretty pleased to see that a uh, new organic milk truck uh, taking our, our her organic milk down the road in uh, November two years ago. Can we talk a little bit about sort of why you guys went organic? Was it a an economic decision for you guys or lifestyle decision? Oh, it, it actually, yeah, honestly, it started as an economic thing. Um, once we had split up the farms, as I described earlier, then we realized that when you split up a farm, you don't split the costs in half. So uh, <laughs> it was pretty tough for for a few years, and we were looking at different ways that we could try to increase our, our income. Then we were speaking to our, our feed rep, actually, and he is also an organic farmer, and he kind of just put a bee in our bonnet a bit. He said, look, you guys are, are pasturing your cows. You don't have a very high grain ration. Like, you're doing so many things that organic requires. Why not look at tra- transitioning and then making that extra 30 cents a litre? So, yeah, originally it definitely was uh, an economic, the decision was made for economic reasons, but um, we have, during our transition and the past few years, we've really come to like the organic way of farming. uh, To us, it's a more relaxed, more laid-back way of farming in a way. You're not a hippie, are you? I am not a hippie, no, and my husband does not wear dreadlocks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And and we don't even eat all organic food. There's nothing nothing like that. But um, we found that um, you just become a little more in tune with the cows when you're you're limited in a way with the sorts of treatments and stuff you can you can use and stuff. Well, just to give some reference, like thirty cents a liter, so that would be like roughly I don't know twelve fourteen cents a pound. That would represent like a twenty five percent premium over over conventional. That's that's significant for sure. It is. What's involved then in organic? You talked a little bit about sort of what it takes to transition. So what are the regulations around sort of cows have to be pastured? You know, is there a specific requirement? You said you said lower grain in the ration. How are those things related to organic? Okay, so for an organic uh, dairy herd, I would think the biggest differences would be, first of all, you uh, must pasture your cows during the grazing season. So here in the Fraser Valley, that's usually mid-April through mid-October, early to mid-October. And there's no regulations how many hours per day, but you need to try to um, make sure that 30% of the cow's forage comes from pasture during the grazing season. So for us, we've kind of figured it out by looking at how much less silage the cows eat while they are in the barn, and then if that, that needs to be 30% less while they're on pasture. So our cows go out after morning milking if it's not too hot, and then they stay out till 2 or 3 in the afternoon, come back in. Usually then it's getting pretty warm out there, and uh, they don't like the heat either, of course. <laughs> and if it, is, if it is too warm during the day, then we'll send them out at night instead. 
And then another requirement uh, for organic is that the, the amount of green you can feed your, your animals is limited to um, 40% of the total ration. Mm-hmm. And that, of course, in turn limits production. So our cows are about a 25-liter average per cow compared to uh, some farms in our area are at 40 liters. So you're talking about your 30-cent premium, but once you you calculate the decrease in production, if you have a higher grain ration, then that needs to be figured in also before you uh, think it's all roses. <laughs> and, of course, our grain has to be organic as well, and that is about twice the cost of conventional grain. So that also eats into your premium quite significantly. Your input costs are, are, are somewhat higher. Uh, there's also um, different antibiotic um, requirements. So if, if you have a cow that needs antibiotic treatment, say for a retained placenta or, or mastitis, um, you are allowed to treat with antibiotics. However, the withdrawal period is at least twice as long as the conventional withdrawal or one month, whatever is longer. So, yeah, so you've got a three-day three withdrawal for, for uh, an antibiotic, then you will have to keep that cow's milk out of, the, out of the tank for an extra month. Well, that's one that I think a lot of consumers would be really surprised at because I think the idea, idea most people would have is that if, if your farm is organic, nobody ever gets antibiotics at any time. That is true in the States, but here in Canada for dairy, they do have different requirements and or different uh, standards that way. Um, and also there's one more stipulation that if a cow receives two treatments of antibiotics in one year, then if she requires a third treatment, she'll need to undergo a, a one-year transition before she can be organic again. Kind of like a three strikes, you're out thing. But honestly, that we haven't had to transition any cows or call them because of um, that third treatment treatment being needed. It's it's been pretty good that way for us. Yeah, I mean, if you're a conventional farmer and you have to treat a cow three times, you're likely making a management decision about that cow. Too. You're not going to want to keep her anyway. She obviously has problems. So <laughs> that's right. Um, and one other thing then that you're not allowed to do either is um, use antibiotics uh, preventatively, like uh, a dry-off treatment with antibiotics isn't permitted either. Right. So in- instead, we um, we wean our cows' milkings down. So once they're they're producing like 10 liters a day towards dry-off time, then we'll milk them once a day and down to once every other day until they're, they're producing, what, five liters, and then we just stop milking them. And we haven't had any problems with them getting mastitis during the dry-off period. So that's worked well for us. Good. And, and it isn't as if these strategies are always unique to organic or conventional, like there's conventional guys would, would utilize some of these strategies as well. And I think the trend on all farms is to try and use less antibiotics, not just because it's, it's sort of better for everybody, including consumers, but costs less, you know, like farmers aren't just pumping their animals full of antibiotics because it's fun. (laughs) And I think using, yeah, using less of anything that costs a lot. I mean, that just makes good business sense. Yeah, exactly. It's it's been actually a lot of fun uh, talking to conventional and organic producers just about their way of doing things and yeah, it's nice to see that there's more similarities than there are differences. I mean, like our protocol if we notice a cow getting mastitis is to rub with the, the mint utter balm and and treat her with aspirin. We talked to our neighbor down the road and he's doing the same thing and he's conventional. So it's there's so many similarities in in that way and that's that's really nice and it's uh we can both learn from each other for sure. Okay, on to sort of more the social side of it. What do your conventional dairy farming neighbors think about organic, and is there any resentment, you think? 
Well, there's it's a mixed bag. Uh, there's people that are more of the live and let live mentality, and there's others that think that we're stealing the conventional farmer's market. Generally, I find that most conventional farmers are happy that there are uh, farmers willing to farm organically to, to capture the market rather than it going to a non-dairy milk like... like uh, Soy milk or that sort of thing, organic, mm-hmm. organic soy milk or, or whatever they have out there right now. So for the most part, I think people are pretty accepting. Um, there are farmers that seem to think that we are trying to get around the rules or that there are farmers trying to get around the rules by not pasturing their cows. Or this idea of spray with Roundup at night so that nobody can see, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you get so some snide comments sometimes, but for the most part, we've been pretty transparent about our successes and failures on social media and whenever we speak with other farmers, and they seem to understand that we're we're doing our best to do the right thing, and, and we understand that they are doing what's best for their farm also, and yeah, we can happily coexist. Now, for your organic program, does it require that you grow non-GMO crops as well? It does, yeah. We do grow corn for our cows and grass and a grass alfalfa mix. So our corn has to be from organic seed, and that, of course, will be non-GMO corn. So, But we are actually growing the same variety of corn as my brother-in-law, and his is conventional then, but non-GMO, and ours is it's the organic brand or the organic seed of the same variety. So it's kind of neat that that's available for both of us. And how is your milk marketed? What would it look like on the grocery store shelf? So um, it's still marketed through the uh, BC Milk Marketing Board. So the organic milk is generally all pooled, and then it will be sold under a variety of different different brands. There's Avalon here in the in the valley. There's Dairyland Organic. There's um, Naturel Organic. And then also a portion of our milk is also shipped to um, Happy Planet Creamery, and that is um, a bit of a different way of doing things here. It's our farm and one other organic Jersey farm that supplies this uh, this small lot processor, and um, it's marketed as heritage breed organic and also grass-fed, so we have to try to stay underneath the 40% grain ration, and once the new um, grass-fed standards come in, we're going to try to adopt those as well. Okay. Heritage breed? What breed of cows do you have? Well, ours are all brown Swiss crosses. Okay. So a Holstein wouldn't be considered a heritage breed, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So they they huh. they talk about brown Swiss, Jerseys, <laughs> okay. um, Ayrshire, Guernsey, that sort of thing being a more heritage breed. Um, hmm. I'm not sure the the stipulations <laughs> on that and okay. why why some breeds are <laughs> considered right. heritage or not. I'm not going to follow that one up. I think I'm just going to let. Yeah. That go. <laughs> um, okay. Well, th- but that does lead me to a. An interesting question. So when you see how organic milk is marketed, organic dairy products, which you're supplying those companies, do you think that they're fair in how they're marketing or is there anything that they do that makes you cringe? Oh, yes. You are getting right to my pet peeve. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> I saw that. I saw that Stony Field video like many have and it's <laughs> terrible. And it's not good. <laughs> It's awful. Um, If you check out my Facebook page and blog, actually, I've written quite extensively about um, fear-mongering in marketing and how I don't like it in conventional or organic, and it does seem to be more prevalent in some organic circles. My take on, on the whole scenario is we should be marketing the benefits of our product without trying to 
diminish another product to sell to sell what we're what we're selling. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't mean creating fear about GMO products or about Roundup or that sort of thing, but rather talking about why we think it's good that our cows go out to pasture or um, the lower grain ration, that sort of thing. Um, and I think at the farmer level, I think what you're saying is is totally legitimate. I don't think farmers are necessarily against other farmers, conventional or organic. I think it gets a little out of control and out of the farmer's hands when it gets to a, a level like the Stony Field or any company that's doing it, anything, the butterfly on it and different things like that, where they push the message to the point where it gets to be less about our product is good. Here's why you should buy it. Our product is good. Other people's are bad. Yeah. It misrepresents what the actual farmer that raised the product really feels. That's absolutely correct. I, I, I 100% agree with you there. It's on the farming level, it's, we're just doing what we think is best for our, our land mm-hmm. and our animals. We're not trying to vilify it the way another person farms because that might be the best, best for their land and their animals and their, their way of farming. And you are very active on social media and your Facebook page. A lot of consumers would go to that for information, which is great. Do you think that they maybe come to you where they wouldn't go to a conventional farmer because you're organic? No, I, I, I don't actually. <laughs> um, I think I probably get a little less um, interactions because we are of a more niche type of a market. Okay. And, and that's, that's not a bad thing, but I, I find that people that aren't interested in organic or any niche type of, of dairy product, they actually aren't as willing to listen to what I have to say as, say, someone like uh, my friend, Farmer Tim, he's got the the more conventional type of dairy farm and um, he seems to yeah, develop a rapport very well with, with all types of consumers. Well, Farmer Tim is very funny. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. I love I love his posts. And uh, actually, when we were in Ontario last summer, we tried to meet up, but he was super busy with his farm work and it never happened. But one of these days, we uh, definitely have to get together and uh, compare notes for sure. Well, if it makes you feel better, we live probably within a half an hour of each other and work in the same industry. And I've not met him yet either. So there is that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I think he likes to stay on farm a lot. So that, that, that would <laughs> well, he's, make a yeah, difference he's a, too. He's a dairy farmer. That's true. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Your blog is very cleverly titled In Utter News. <laughs> that would qualify as a dad joke almost. I guess it would be Pretty a mom much, joke. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, it's a suggestion from my sister, so I can't take the credit for that. <laughs> and you're quite active, and you, you do write about a lot of interesting topics. What are some of your other sort of pet peeves? Ah, yeah, supply management t- tends to be one that gets me uh, <laughs> gets my fingers itching to type, to put it that way. I, I find um, writing is kind of therapeutic for me, so when things are, are irritating or you have me worked up, I tend to write out my feelings and those mm-hmm. usually end up being blog posts then. So, for example, the latest news about the, the new TPP um, allowing the same amount of dairy access as what had been negotiated when the U.S. was still part of the agreement. So even though the U.S. was 60% of the, the GDP of the, the original TPP, once they left, the, the government still has allowed the same amount of access to our market. Right. And then presumably, if the U.S. ever gets back in, that percentage is going to have to go up. Oh, I'm, I'm sure that I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure that's what they would uh, they would um, insist on for sure. And then, yeah, you've got NAFTA negotiations happening with all that kind of rhetoric going around with that too. And it's yeah, it's concerning because it's 
a lot of people have compared it to that saying, a death by a thousand cuts. Mm-hmm. I think that's true every time we're getting whittled away. And BC is much like Ontario, where there's lots of people going across that border every day. And they like to talk about price comparisons and things in supermarkets, you know, within an hour of each other. One's on the U.S. side, one's on the Canadian side. I imagine you probably have to address that issue a fair bit. Yeah, because what a lot of consumers don't realize, too, is that that price is not generally reflective of the the average American price. There was a, a pretty good study put out by Nielsen, I think, in 2016, uh, that the um, the price of our milk is actually lower than the U.S. hormone-free milk, which and all Canadian milk is produced without the use of the bovine growth hormone. So if you compare apples to apples, our consumers actually get a better deal. The hormone discussion is one I've talked a little bit about before, and I guess that's one that always makes me a little bit nervous when we when we talk about that. Consumers have a hard enough time understanding the idea of hormones and that there's hormones in everything that we that we use. And I, I think the discussion about supply management, I don't know that we need to really throw that one in there. Yeah, it's 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 definitely um that it's not not a, a danger to humans at all. That there's much more estrogen in in cabbage than there is in milk or meat, for that matter. So, yeah, it's kind of a non-starter. But consumers tend to definitely get very worked up about that sort of thing. Yep, they really do. And and dairy farming is hard enough on both sides of the border. The same thing as sort of conventional farmers and organic farmers. We're all on the same side. I, I sort of feel like. Canadian dairy farmers and American dairy farmers, even though we operate under a different system than they do, it's better if we're all sort of working towards the same goals than if we're all fighting against each other. Oh, yeah. So I so agree. I, I actually uh, wrote a, a piece on Facebook about that a while ago. I have a bunch of different dairy farmers that I follow on social media, but also some that I've become quite good friends with. And I feel for them trying to produce milk underneath uh, with with such low milk prices and worried about going under, especially farmers that are just starting out. It's so tough to see that because, you know, dairy farming is a lifestyle, right? It's not just this job that you can pick up whenever you want. It's something that either you've grown up in or that you've dreamed of your whole life. And then to, to have the threat that that's going to be taken away from you, it's devastating. Right. It really is heartbreaking. And the thing about it is, and I think there's a lot of people are starting to understand this, that by getting rid of our supply management system, which provides some stability for farmers and allows for a little more infrastructure in rural communities, and there's some things that we gain from having that, trashing that doesn't solve the problem that exists in other parts of the world. No, they'll flood our market and then they'll be right back to square one again because the production is just going to keep going up. They'll they'll start producing more around the world to, to fill our market yeah. if need be. And then once that's full, well, then, then what? And in the meantime, our, our farms, what will happen to them? We can't compete with the huge dairies in, in New Zealand. And that's where you and I are, maybe are going to take a slightly different a different approach. I'm not so convinced that it's a question of us competing with them. Dairy products aren't nuts and bolts. Dairy isn't something that you can just sort of buy from the lowest bidder. I, I think there's like a food security aspect to this that I think we want to be able to produce our own food. And you look at other countries that maybe have lost the ability to do that. And I think that that would be terrible if we did. Yeah, food, food serenity, <laughs> food serenity is, is definitely um, becoming more of forefront also in the consumer's mind, especially with the whole eat local sort of movement, that sort of thing coming up. Consumers do want to, to have food produced by their, by their fellow citizens. I understand that. 
but um, when you've got a price war going on, it's still money money talks too. So it's 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 concerning for sure. Yep, it is. And in my own mind, I I have this vague dream that other people will catch on that it maybe makes sense to match supply with demand, and and someday other people will see the merits of supply management instead of trying to tear it down. Yeah, exactly. You hear that from a lot of uh, the smaller farmers in the U.S. that they would love a system like ours that would uh, make them more viable. And uh, I hope that maybe someday they can figure something out similar to us. Okay, we probably better get off supply management here or else we'll have <laughs> lost a good chunk of our, of our non-Terry audience. But I, yeah. uh, <laughs> when you're, you talked about connecting with dairy farmers in the U.S. and around the world on, on social media, what are your approaches to connecting with people like what are your do's and don'ts on facebook and on social media number one would uh would be be kind you're going to encounter a lot of people with different opinions and uh, sometimes people are not very nice about the way they state their opinions i think it's on my twitter profile my kind of motto is err on the side of of kindness you're going to win more more loyalty with with honey than with uh, <laughs> with vinegar <laughs> put it that way I sometimes definitely have to take a deep breath and step back from from my phone or my computer before I, I respond because it can be pretty pretty tempting to respond with snark to snark. Yeah, I, I've I do try always to to see where where this person who's commenting is coming from and to understand their point of view before before I respond, and uh, not to stoop to their level if if they have become belligerent and and abusive. I still try to stay calm and and collect it and, and answer the questions if they have any, that sort of thing. But, of course, if they become too abusive, I'm not afraid to use the block button either. Ah, right. You don't need that in your life. And have you had the experience of connecting with someone on social media and then getting a chance to meet them in real life? Yeah. Actually, we've had a few people come through and, and to our farms that had concerns about, about how for example, how dairy cows are treated on, on farms and what happens to the calves, that sort of really? thing. Yeah. So I think it's three or four in the last year, just individuals, mostly from the city, from Vancouver. Wow. So it's okay. So tell me about that. Yeah. Yeah. So that has felt, that's been really cool because it, it, it really feels like I'm making a difference in a small way to to combat the myths that are out there about dairy farming. So that, that has been super special to, to meet these people. And so once they come out to the farm, then you've got like an actual face-to-face connection. Now they know a farmer and they go away from there. It, it would be a lot harder for them to vilify farming as an industry. Yeah. Once they, once they put a face to the farmer, it seems like they get a whole new level of respect for, for the work we do, but also the, the care that goes into to taking care of our animals. Those are the kind of stories that I think people need to, to hear because it does feel sometimes like we're fighting a losing battle and not really making any kind of a dent in the the misconceptions and some of the negative stuff that goes on out there. Yeah, I do. I do think that um, the misconceptions and myths, they do come from a, a small minority of people, but they're just very vocal. I, I do think that in general, people do still trust farmers and they do trust that farmers are doing a good job taking care of their land and their animals. But when you've got this vocal minority spewing out all this sort of propaganda, it can it can feel very overwhelming and that we're fighting a losing battle. But once you start making these connections with consumers, you understand that truly consumers 
uh, they are interested in where their food comes from, but also they they do trust that farmers are do have their cows and and or other animals' best interests in mind. Right. Any particularly special things that you're going to do for February? Ah, yeah. I kind of was brainstorming yesterday, and I was uh, up for my middle of the night feed with uh, little Avery, and I thought, <laughs> oh, maybe I should just <laughs> try to post a photo every weekday. I've, I won't commit to the weekends, also, but um, I've tried to commit to posting a photo and caption for every weekday during the month of February for February Dairy. So that'll be on Instagram and, and Facebook. And the nice thing is, especially with Facebook, you can um, schedule the posts. So I might be doing some middle-of-the-night typing <laughs> coming up and scheduling some posts. <laughs> you clearly have taken your social media knowledge to a level that I haven't quite achieved. So good for you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I have not figured out how to do that on Instagram, so I, <laughs> there might be some copying and pasting going on. <laughs> Very good. Thanks Thanks for taking the time and, and talking with me. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it was nice to speak with you too. We will get people connected with you on social media, whether you're farming conventionally, whether it's organic. We're all sort of working towards the same goals, and it's it's great that we can share our ideas and consumers get to have that choice. This has been the Ontario Agcast. Please go back to Twitter, give us a retweet, give us a rating on iTunes. It helps us grow the audience. Don't forget to check out all the great agriculture podcasts and agriculture video blogs over at the Farm and Rural Ag Network, farmruralag.com. Don't miss our Fran Happy Hour Thursday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. Hashtag Fran Happy Hour. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.